I'm John Hall. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. And this is, again, one of those shows that I wish I could have done in person. Jennifer Talley, the longtime award-winning brewer, is here to talk education, Pilsner, and a new IPA she's brewed with Firestone Walker. Stay to the end, and you won't be disappointed. But first, I'm glad to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Bull-Eyed Communications. Do you have the right messages in place to make your brewery stand out in a crowded field? Are you executing with trusted partners who know the beer industry? Are you receiving the right counsel? Bolide Communications is a creative and strategic marketing agency with decades of experience working with some of the biggest names in beer and consumer products. Bolide Communications offers a wide range of marketing services to satisfied customers, including positioning, sales collateral and POS, branding, website design, public relations, and social media. Talk with Bolide Communications today on how they can get your brewery and beer to stand out to audiences that matter. You can visit them online at bolidecommunications.com or simply call 973-975-3037. You already make great beer, let Bolide Communications help with the rest. And be sure to check out beeredge.com for articles, to subscribe to the newsletter, and to get episodes of the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. We're also on social media at The Beer Edge. And yes, we've expanded our This Week in Rauschbeer offerings. Not only do we have the Facebook group, you can search it at This Week in Rauschbeer, but we now also have Twitter and Instagram accounts that I'm desperately trying to keep up with. Get Rauschy with us at TW Rauschbeer. Jennifer Talley is a brewer's brewer, and I can't count the number of times over the years of covering beer that her name has come up. And it's often in awe and always in excitement when brewers talk about who they admire in the industry. Still, I never actually had the chance to interview her or have pints out in the, in the real world. So when a press release from Firestone Walker arrived in my inbox this week promoting an IPA that Tally brewed with Matt Brindelson, I wanted to remedy that situation. And she graciously agreed to come on the show. She holds a Bachelor of Science in Sociology and a Master's of Social Work degree from the University of Utah, and that's the same state where she spent more than 20 years as the brewmaster and director of research and development for Squatters Brewery and Salt Lake Brewing Company. She's a graduate of the Siebel Institute, that's where she met Brendelson, and she was part of a pretty epic graduating class. Throughout her career, she's brewed for the Craft Brew Alliance, Russian River, Auburn Ale House, and more. And with nearly two dozen medals at both the World Beer Cup and Great American Beer Festival under her belt, she's also the author of Session Beers from Brewers Publication. She's currently on the board of the Brewers Association. She's on the Pub Brewer Committee. And in 2011, she was awarded the Russell Schurer Award for Innovation in Craft Brewing. She's been described as a force of positive energy, one of the coolest people in the industry, and in an email before this conversation, Brindelson simply called her a trip. She spoke to me from California, and I started off by asking about the style she wished got a little more respect by brewers and drinkers alike. Here's our conversation. Is there a style of beer that you wish got more attention these days, but that doesn't? Um, yes, I do. I, I would love to see um, German pills get more attention. Attention. Um, I absolutely love um, a classic German pilsner. I think it's a phenomenal beer. Beer. It's, of course, one of my favorite session beers to drink. Um, sometimes they tip above 5%, um, uh, but I don't, 
I'm not too concerned with the fine lines of certain definitions. And I just, they're just wonderfully refreshing after a hard day, whether you're in the yard or at work. And I think that the German pills really doesn't get hardly any, any attention. Um, and it's just such a lovely beer and, and so different than the American premium lager that, you know, uh, most of our palates are trained on um, here in North America. Why, why don't you think it gets the attention? Um, I think, well, I'm, I'm hope I, I, I haven't thought too much about that, but maybe because there's not enough, because it's so clean, because it's, it's got such a purity about it, you know, and of course that started with the water and, um, and there's, there's not much to say, you know, and, but with, with little words, there's so much, there's, there's, there's so much there. And, um, you know, it's not about, um, what you put in your beer, it's really what you keep out. And I think these days, um, and I wrote about this in my afterward um, session beers is um, I compared it to um, evacuating your house. I live right near a mine uh, called Empire Mine. And um, we had to evacuate. I was bringing my son home from a football game. And um, I was supposed to write that day. And after I um, told the children to go into their rooms and go ahead and get their you know, one favorite toy and put it in the car. And I packed up the um, pictures and I packed up the social security cards and the computer. It took about, you know, half hour to do all of that. I, you know, I walked around in the rooms of our life really and realized I really don't need hardly any of this. You know, what really brings quality to my life was in the car, which were my children and, you know, a couple, couple little things. And that was about it. And I had to write. So I stayed with the house and I couldn't technically write that day. So I just kind of wrote. My father was a writer as well. So I, sometimes it's just healing. So I just wrote. And um, what I ended up writing, um, we printed as the afterward. And it, and it basically um, made an analogy of evacuating your home in a fire to evacuating your beer of things you don't need to put in it. Often these days we're speaking of, I need to make a, you know, strawberry pastry, <laughs> black roasted stout with sure. goo-goo-berries from my backyard. Right. Yeah. Well, oftentimes, you know, like the German Pilsner, it's, it's just so clean, it's so refreshing. And it, it's, you know, four ingredients, um, malted barley, hops, water, and yeast. And I think with the fast world of the craft beer industry and the way it seems to be kind of, digressing or progressing i don't know which one you will, you're a believer in but um it, it's about what you put in it and i kind of think that's why the german pills is so left by the wayside is because um it's not what you put in it, it's what you keep out it, it, it's so interesting to hear you talk about because i i wrestle with that personally of you know is is the industry moving forward in a meaningful way or is it falling backwards uh in a detrimental way um And I think about this a lot and I try to have this conversation a lot because there are new generations of brewers that don't see, you know, the harm in and maybe there isn't harm uh, in adding all lactose everything or Rice Krispies and and Lucky Charms and Skittles and everything else to, 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 to a beer. And then there's other folks who are really trying to hold a line of tradition and... I, I, I imagine there's got to be a middle ground somewhere. I mean, every style that we have right now was the result of experimentation, was the result of pushing things forward a little bit or finding flavors or, and tastes that work and consumers that wanted to, 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 to drink them. But I, 
I yeah. I hear you, and I, my answer would be pr- pretty simply. It's it's. I think it's pretty simple, and although you know it seems complex on the surface, it's really uh, very simple. Every brew pub I've ever worked in, every brewery I've ever worked in, um, I am the the beers that sell. Um, for instance, with eight hundred five, you know, I mean, it is just from Firestone, yeah, right from Firestone. I mean, it's just all over California. It's number one selling beer in California, I think, right now, and um, you know, so. They make very unique beers and you know different fun things and hazies and all of that. But what what's really selling? Um, and uh, I think at many brew pubs you'll have a lot of these you know you know rice crispy stouts and things like that. And and that's great. But what's really selling? It's probably their golden ale or probably some light you know lager beer. Um, and hopefully it's German pills with a fun name. <laughs> um, but what's talked about is the the specialty beer. So I I really think the answer is simple. I think there's room for all and. And then the, you know, the customers like you always have, you know, they'll figure it out for us. If they start drinking and just demanding, how could you run out of that Rice Krispie Stout? You know, of course, we'll make a bigger batch next time. But usually what it is is, you know, oh, my gosh, I've got to get another tank in here so I can keep my blonde ale up. Yeah. And then that still is that still holds true um, today. So, um although it seems like the landscape has massively changed when it comes to consumption, um, with with the uh, with, I mean, IPAs obviously have grown massively, but still, that's we consider that fairly classic style coming from you know England and whatnot. So, um, I think it still holds today that the majority of beer drank is you know session, sessionable beers. When when American craft really started to take off in the in the you know, in the eighties and the nineties and, um, and and beyond, there was the ABV wars. It was people were really trying to push the envelope and how high can we get can we get these beers? And I and, and I think it was, you know, in everything that I've read and brewers that I've talked to, a direct response to decades and decades of bland, you know, light American adjunct lagers of okay, everything has been four and a half, five percent, um, you know, and clear and blonde and no soul you know let's do a 15 percent stout you know let's do mm-hmm. ipas that, that 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 sort of push the limit but i session beers have definitely and lower abv fuller flavor beers there has been a, a steady march towards them again and you're obviously a huge advocate for that um what in your mind constitutes a proper session beer I think that um, under five percent. I mean, right around there. I, I'm not like a, a stickler for five one, five two. You know, okay. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful southern um, hefeweizens that are five point two that you could just sit and drink in a beer garden all day long. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't say, well, it's five point two. It's not a session beer. I just don't believe in hard definitions like that. Um, but I, I hover around five. Um, now I think, um, many people consider four and I've gotten beat up about this. And if people want to argue, have something to argue about, it's a, it's a, it's a good, it's a fun argument as well as all the other ones. So let's have a discussion, you know, yeah. who, who, who doesn't like a heated beer discussion. Um, but for my, my part, you asked me personally what I believe, and I believe around 5%. Um, the biggest thing about the biggest, um, definition for me is that it has to be a high quality beer. Okay. So that means, um, 
absent, going back to that, um, it's not what you put in your beer, it's what you keep out, absent of all any flaws, no acetaldehyde, no acetic acid. Um, well, if it's kept in bay and it's further, you know, and it's enjoyable time and, you know, in the nice goes, goes or something. Um, so no, no, no high amounts of this, um, acetaldehyde or, um, uh, diacetyl, you know, and no oxidation, things that are off-putting, anything that's off-putting, or let's say you used um, coriander in a nice wit. Well, you maybe got your notes wrong and used five times too much. And oh my gosh, okay, great. You use coriander, but you overdid it. So nothing too intense. So something that you want to revisit time and time again, you know, and uh, so you continue to want to gravitate back. Now that doesn't mean you can't have intensely beautiful flavors coalesce and make you want to continue to revisit them like the parabola i think i cannot pronounce that barrel beer correctly yeah, but parabola yeah yeah it's a wonderful it's not a session beer obviously but <laughs> no. man is it a beautiful beer and that's a that's a that's a really good example of taking incredibly intense flavors and making them incredibly really enjoyable but i would drink one in the evening with some dark chocolate or, you know, a cherry tart or something, you know, and pair it really nicely. But for a session beer, you not only have to have it very clean, high quality. I do believe that you, you know, thank you. May I have another is a, is a line I say often when I give talks about session beers, I think you, you a session beer needs, you want to continue to drink them throughout the, you know, session of the drinking session that you're having kind of like a round by in England. And the, what I've noticed is just as a drinker over the year that if I get one beer and stick with it through the course of the night, and if it is a simple beer but it it, it has high quality to it, mm-hmm. it continues to evolve. You know, it starts to hit like its sweet spot, like on the third glass. Like I'm thinking of, you know, like slow pour pills from Beerstadt uh, in in Denver. Like it's that beer really starts to reveal itself three glasses in, or maybe that's just me uh, and my no, my I, brain I getting swimmy. Yeah. No, I would agree with you because I think our palates change throughout the night as well. Our attention might change. We might start off. I mean, think about when you go into when you're when you're drinking. So, I mean, this we're talking a social situation, and it's situational, it, it, like anything is. You know, you walk into a social situation, you grab your beer, you instantly see someone you know. Your mind is completely, you know, already talking, and you're drinking a beer. You might just be, you know, thirsty. Um, you might not be thinking at all. Then you might get a second beer, and maybe your attention shifts to watching someone else speak, or a music that's playing, or maybe sitting alone, or reading a book, or looking around the brewery. And now you're, you know, maybe paying more attention to, you know, the beer in your hand. So it's all situational as well. Um, but I, I also experienced the same thing. Um, I really experienced that when I was at Firestone during the collaboration and I, and I drank Pivo the whole time. I mean, not the whole time. I drank, I went through <laughs> all of the beers and they're wonderful beers. Um, but Pivo was the one that I couldn't wait to continue to drink. More with Jennifer Talley in just a minute, but first, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Bolide Communications. It's a creative and strategic marketing consultancy with decades of experience working with some of the biggest names in beer and consumer products. Talk with Bolide Communications today on how they can get your brewery and beer to stand out to audiences that matter. Visit them online at bolidecommunications.com or call 973-975-3037. And now back to the fun with Jennifer Talley. So we should talk about this collaboration uh, that you did. It's called Tally Cat Sunflower IPA. 
and I feel like I should ask if there are actually sunflowers in this beer. <laughs> fair question, fair question. As we considered putting sunflowers in, we knew it would not add to the quality of the beer, so Matt and I decided that we would restrain. And it's just really a play on words from a, a Grateful Dead song that we both like called China Cat Sunflower. So uh, I have this email from Matt Brindelson up on my desktop right now. Um, uh, and he said the collaboration was a three-day journey of epic proportions. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever heard a collaboration beer described uh, as a multi-day process, first of all. I mean, maybe there's been one or two. Uh, but epic proportions makes me feel like I'm strapping in for you know, a screening of all of the Lord of the Rings films or something. Um, can, can you shed some light on that? Well... I don't know legally what I'm allowed to shed light on, but I will know that when Matt and I, we've been friends for 27 years. And so we had not, and COVID has clouded all of our social engagements in the beer industry. Yeah. And um, we, and of course, met in brewing school um, in 1995. And we have, you know, we see concerts all the time, all over the country with all of our friends when we go to CDC. Um and we've traveled to, throughout Europe together with our friends, you know, and he's, he's a very close friend of mine. And so we've been, as everyone, been held up, you know, kind of hold up in, in the house with COVID and we got together. So um, that right there was an epic proportion of just us getting together and drinking and laughing and sharing. And, um, and you know, sometimes that collaborations can get dangerous. So, you know, I mean, we had a lot of good times. There's a, there's a, there's a great place um, that the, uh, to stay um, near um, the brewery down in Venice, and um, we had great dinner and great laughter. I won't get into the specifics, but Epic Proportions absolutely describes it. <laughs> and um, it was uh, we just uh, we both we both love to tell stories, and I mean, it had been I, I just didn't realize how long, it, and it's probably only been. 18 months, but it had seemed like a lifetime since we had gotten together and talked. And it started out very quiet and lovely at his home, meeting his children for the first time. And then, you know, ended up with the film crew and the, and the, um, you know, the brew and all of that to where, you know, by the time I got home, I was like, wow, that felt like a week. So. <laughs> I, I know I've been around enough collaboration beers as they've been hatched or seen brewers sort of mash, you know, hash stuff out over time to to land on what they're what they're going to make. You two have known each other, I, I, you know, you said since since the 1990s, and you were part of one of this uh, one of the most uh, I think storied classes at Siebel. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've seen the lineup, you know, in there. I mean, uh, Mary Paltieri oh, was on there and, oh, yeah. you know, David Ryder of, of Miller Brewing and Lynn Kruger, uh, who obviously went on to run Siebel. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the list was, it must have been a pretty cool class to be in and certainly the impact that that class has had on brewing over the last you know, 20 years is, 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 is amazing. Um, when two brewers like you and Matt get together, I imagine the conversations are a little bit different than some other brewers when they're when they're talking about collaborations because you have, you know, the, the, these great life experiences and you've been at the top of you know, some really wonderful uh, and storied breweries. How does that conversation start when you're going to make a collaboration beer together? Um, you and know, then where does it go? It's yeah. one, um, it was interesting. It was one of the um, 
first times that um, I've really collaborated. I've collaborated. We're always collaborating, okay? But like an official collaboration. I mean, I, I know there's been other ones in my lifetime, but there, you know, it's been it's been a minute. And um, especially one that's been put in a can with my name on it. I'll have to say that's my first, um, which I just thought was really endearing that they did that. Um, <laughs> and also, if you know Matt, I mean, to know Matt is to love Matt in the brewing world, in any world, really. He's just a fabulous human being. He and is. so, you know, it's, it's, he's very easy to work with. Um, so the, the conversation flowed so eloquently. We couldn't, you know, we instantly picked two beers. It just was, it wasn't even up for thought, you know, um, because we're both in California. IPAs are so popular. I'm always brewing session beers and everybody always wants to brew, you know, Pilsner with Mac as a Pivo. So we just instantly picked like IPA and, and how can we change it and do something, you know, fun with it. And hold on one second. just needed to decline a phone call. Oh, okay. um, anyway, so when we got on the phone, we instantly f- picked two collaborations we wanted to do. The first one, um, which turned out to be Tally Cat Sunflower. Um, and then the second one will be coming um, in, a, in a later date um, and will be revealed, but it will be a, a sour beer um, and we'll name it Six Element. And we can tell that story if you would like later on yeah. um, between uh, Freem Family Breweries. I think Freem Family brewery and Josh Freem and then myself and Matt. And there's a whole large collaboration story behind that. Um, but that will be a, an aged sour beer made in barrels and whatnot. Um, but the IPA was, was was very, very easy to come up with that idea because I wanted to um, make an IPA with him. And I'll never forget when I, when I, when I got my first IPA award at uh, Great American Beer Festival, which was not that many years ago, was I think it was like 20, I'd have to look, but it's something like 2012 or 13 or something. And yeah. um, it it was the silver at GABF, and I, I couldn't wait to find Matt to, to, so he could say thank you. Oh, my gosh, I'm so happy for you, Jennifer, right? Because he's always he's just the king of IPA. Yeah. And, um, and the first thing he said was, well, looks like I need to enter IPA again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Which I just – I mean, I hugged him. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's, it's, I mean, we're, we're that kind of, we're kind of that kind of friends. I mean, we just had so much fun with beer, you know, we're not competitive, although we are, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's fun. It's, it's fun com- camaraderie yeah. collaboration. And we're always collaborating. We're always, we're always talking about how to make beer and what to do. And so the w- most wonderful thing about this collaboration was I didn't know how Matt was, you know, how Matt was going to be, you know, it's a different kind of forum for us. And when we get to, when we get to the malt profile or we get to the hot profile, he would ask me, you know, one of the things that they love to do there at Firestone, probably led by Matt, is um, this uh, um, propagator series down at Venice Beach, where we brewed, is really to get the inspiration of other brewers around the nation and probably world at some point um, in there. So, you know, to get them out of what they're usually doing at Firestone, to get their minds kind of creative juices flowing. Um, and so he really wanted to hear from me, which was just really, really beautiful. And so a lot of things were driven from some of my ideas. And that he thought were interesting, and that we kind of we uh, grabbed onto. So, <laughs> I'm just thinking about that comment at, at oh, GABF. Like that, that's yeah. enough to strike fear into the heart of any brewer who overheard yeah. that. Because if, if for anybody who's listening to this, if if you haven't been to the Great American Beer Festival, there's an annual uh, award ceremony, and what you can count on is seeing Matt Brindelson walk across the stage multiple times uh during the award ceremony uh in multiple categories uh i mean that's just 
you know, you can set your watch to it. So, um, you know, <laughs> that's <laughs> him entering a new category, I think would, uh, uh, strike fear in the, in the hearts of many, yeah. many a brewer. Um, but obviously, I mean, it, I, I would think that there would be, or maybe I, I'm, I'm, I'm making too many assumptions here, but when, when it comes to creating a collaboration, especially for, for, two longtime friends like you two there could have been a, a you know oh do you remember that from when we were in school you know let's try that again or you know hey let's really sort of change things up and you know see what we can create from scratch um did yeah. you think about like you know it went so easy john um he we got to first of all we got on the phone of course sam was part of that you know uh collaborative conversation he's the brewer at the propagator yes he's the brewer down at um propagator and it was very simple we just started at the top and we just started with you know grist profile and um and he said what do you think and oh now i'm thinking about a grist profile of an ipa it's extraordinarily simple for the most part if you're going to make a classic west coast ipa um and we instantly kind of said well we don't want any caramel malt in here and and then we all agreed pretty quickly on that. And, um, and I said, you know, I always wanted to put rice in it. I've always wanted to, you know, make a, you know, 7% um, IPA about um, drink like a session. And I think that adding an adjunct like rice could really help that process. And Matt goes, That's, I love that idea. That sounds great. And Sam goes, gosh, what? I got rice in the house. And boom, they're done. I mean, it was that quick. Huh. And so all of a sudden we have a unique, you know, I, you know, and, and, and it's, and still classic, you know, I mean, for the most part, um, yeah, not even for the most part, it's still kind of a classic IPA um, without having to bring in kind of, you know, you know, mind uh, sunflower seeds from the, um, <laughs> the hills of Southern California or something, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then we went on down the process of, you know, how do you like to do, you know, your calcium? And I, I, I brought a lot of my session beer knowledge um, to the table, um, even though we're making a 7%. Um, actually, I didn't. I, 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 when I wrote the session beer book, I, I, I studied up a lot on calcium and when to use it and how to use it. So I kind of brought in my toolkit for how I like to use calcium sulfate and calcium chloride throughout the brew and um, the mash and the kettle and uh, brought in some of my process ideas that Matt was, you know, interested in that um, some of them they did and some of them, you know, they didn't do as much. And we mixed it up there a bit. Um, as far as temperatures and goes, we were all pretty much on par. And then the hops was of course, extraordinarily fun. So um, it really was an incredible smooth process. Um, and I didn't know what to anticipate. I, I was a little nervous. I, I'll, I'll, I gotta tell you, which I'm really, really nervous. Um, I've done a lot of podcasts and, you know, and, you know, interviews and speaking engagements. And so, and he's one of my closest friends, but I was a little nervous. I'm like, gosh, I mean, I'm not going to like, when it came to hops, we came to the hop section. I just, I was like, okay, so um, what would you like to do, Matt? You know, really, honestly. Yeah. I mean, cause he's, he's so wonderful. Right? And he's, you know, came from um, CalSec and a hop chemist. I just kind of looked towards him and he's like, well, I'm really interested to see how you would do the hops, Jen, is what he said. And I said, oh my God, that's so, that's so exciting. So, <laughs> And nerve wracking so, and yeah, and yeah, flattering and yeah. Yeah. And so he kind of let me run with the scissors a little bit, but I backed it up and I, and I, and I, and I brought, you know, I don't know if you read any of it, but I, I, you know, highlighted things and I sent him things and he's like, I'm sure he didn't open any of them, you know, and, <laughs> and gave him reasoning on why I would like to do it a certain way. And, and we ran with the scissors on that. 
I, I, I would imagine that he probably did read it. I, he is yeah, he, he, he is did. he is one of the most uh, uh, ferocious readers uh, that I've come across in in the beer uh, industry in the in, in in the beer world. Um, well, what drew you to the to the hot profile that you ultimately decided on? Oh yeah. Um, well, when we came to the hot profile, um, he said, "How would you like to drive the bitterness?" You know, where would you, we all agreed on the the, the the BU somewhere between forty five and fifty five. We did not want to be overbearing. You know, at Siebel, um, Elsa was our sensory teacher, and she one of the things she taught us was that the human palate the human palate could not taste. I don't can't speak for my dog, could not taste anything higher than forty five BU. So if you had a, uh, a IPA at forty five, one at sixty five. Um, one at 85, your palate cannot, you know, tell the difference. And yeah. I, now I, you know, that's what I was trained as. I don't know if the, I, I, I don't know if we've continued to do more research and where the research is currently on that and our ability and thresholds. But I've, you know, it's, 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 it's a fascinating, once again, fascinating um, fodder for conversation. And yeah. so I wanted to keep the BU level between 45 and 55. And so did Sam and Matt. We all, that was, that was instantly, we were all on the same page there. We didn't want to, you know, we wanted the beer to be drank. You know, you bought a four pack, maybe you get through all of them in the evening or something, as long as you're not driving. Yeah. And um, so, but where you drive your bitterness has always been fascinating to me. And especially when I wrote the book um, on the, I, I, being a session brewer, um, where you drive your bitterness, I, I came to uh, theorize, made a large difference in how you experienced your bitterness. Now you have to remember this is just kind of sensory analysis um, theory. Not you know I would really like to do some hard, uh, tried and true tests maybe with OSU and Todd Shell, to, um, Shel- Tom Shelmer, Tom Shelmer, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly, and um, and really kind of do some proving. Uh, proof to the pudding and some hypothesis here, but I believe where you drive that BU, meaning where you isomerize those alpha acids in the boil or post-boil uh, or in the whirlpool or post-boil in a dry hopping with auxiliary bittering substances that come off of your dry hops or reduce bitterness through dry hopping because there's many papers of theory written on that. And, you know, we're just scratching the surface here. Um, I believe that, that, that you experience the bitterness on your palate differently where you um, in the different ways you drive the bitterness in your beer. And so, um, and why I came up with that very shortly is because um, back when I was brewing at Squatters uh, between 91 and uh, 2011, um, at 4% ABV on draft, 14 taps, um, I, you know, was trying to be creative as possible to disseminate the beers on tap. And I would try different things. So I would take noble, I would take you know high alpha hops, put them in the beginning, and noble hops at the end. And I was you know dry hopping and trying to learn all these different things. And I realized when I drove my bitterness um, at the very end of the boil to try and increase aroma. Okay, this is prior to huge dry hopping craze. Sure, if you can remember that far back. <laughs> um, and it's, I, so it's, I it's hazy. Yeah, I know it's hazy, isn't it? I would reduce my IBUs at the beginning of the boil, and I would try to I would drive the aroma at the end. Well, I would also be driving the bitterness because over 175 F, your eyes on rising alpha acids. So even in the whirlpool, you're picking up bitterness. Um, I noticed that these beers on tap at four percent were had a lingering, harsher bitterness on the side of my tongue. Huh. And so I started going, huh, what's going on? I don't like that. Almost to, an, almost to the liking of astringency or not liking of astringency. It's almost like astringent almost. Um, but it wasn't astringent. It was because of the BUs. And so I, I went back to classic brewing 
who would have thought, and pulled the BUs out of the end of the boil and kind of drove them more up front. I still did a flavor hop, twenty minute, about 15 minutes to end a boil. I, I call that a flavor hop, meaning I think you really get to taste the hop flavor, um, which I believe is different than the bitterness, different than the aroma. Um, it's almost a, you know, the tasting of the, the Halatau Midafru or the tasting of the Simcoe or the Cascade about 10 minutes to eat, 10 to 15 minutes EOB. Mm-hmm. And then we did some aroma hop. So about 35% of the IBU was 10 minutes to end of boil. But the 65% was the first hopping and the second hopping, which was boiled for, you know, um, a bit of time, quite a bit of time, a 60-minute hop and then a 30-minute addition. So we did four additions, one at 60, one at 30, one 10 minutes to EOB, and one at Whirlpool. Huh. And the 10 minutes to EOB and the Whirlpool – only comprised 35 of the BUs. Well, that's what we calculated. That's a hand calculation, okay? Sure. Um, of course, we got some um, um, auxiliary bittering substances from the dry hop, which uh, we did a double dry hop on it. Um, but the majority of that bitterness that we calculated um, came up front. And it also came from noble hops, which was uh, which uh, most people pick a high alpha, they f- uh, kind of a workhorse hop, like a magnum or something. Yeah. Um, and just to get the job done, get some BUs in there. On a lot of these hazy beers, they don't put any, any even boiling hops in the beer anymore. They're even cooling the wort down. They're making zero IBU beers, cooling the wort down, and then adding hops um, at 170F in the Whirlpool. They're, they're actually installing equipment where they're cooling things down between the kettle and the Whirlpool. Um, so they don't isomerize at all. Um, it's a whole new wave of thinking of no one wants any bitterness at all. Um, yeah. and, and with our case, we wanted the bitterness of an IPA, but we wanted it, you know, moderate and we wanted it to fall on the palate in a soft manner and not in a harsh manner, like, uh, not like a, a stringent manner, like I've experienced with later hot beers. Yeah. So that's where I came up with that idea. And then I also did, you know, and I won't get into it now, but for further research, there's some wonderful books out there on quality of hop character and quality of bitterness. And I think there's just tons more research to be done, and which is, you know, after, you know, so many decades in the industry still keeps both people like Matt and myself just super excited to get together and make a West Coast IPA. <laughs> yeah, I, I it's it's interesting on the BUs and keeping it in the 40s or 50s um, mm-hmm. because there was – you know, for a while, the, this whole trend of you know the the, the the bitterness wars, where people were saying, "Oh, it's you know, it's 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 a hundred, it's it's hundred and twenty, it's three hundred and twelve, you know, like whatever it, it, you know, these ridiculous numbers." And on on some level, I remember thinking, "Gosh," and this was probably in the early two thousands, uh, you know, mid part of that 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 decade, um, it was too much, and yeah. it just sort of turned me off for a while. On some of the IPAs that were being cranked out because there was no nuance to it. There was no, you know, it was just listening to, to you know, a, like an okay song at a really loud volume. And yeah, it was, it, yeah, I, I would agree with you. And um, the going back to getting that silver at JBF, when I was at Auburn Ale, Ale House when I was the uh, lead brewer there. And he, he was on a kind of a beersmith program and he was not calculating the whirlpool or well, it was, it was a very low percentage of utilization calculation for his whirlpool and his final 
um, hopping. And um, one of the things I did besides alter the malt and pull out some of the interesting malts that were in there, um, one of the things I, I did was pull out a large amount of BUs in, in the beer. And, you know, it was when I went and hand calculated it, um, this IPA we won with, um, it was calculated at 145 BUs, like you were saying. And one of the things I did was pull that out. And then for the first time, you know, we, you know, he gets to go up there and grab a silver award for his IPA. So I, I would attest a lot of the success of that IPA um, had to do with the altering of where those hops came into play when, when we put them in the boil and also reducing them. Is there a path forward for brewers to appeal to the younger drinkers or the drinkers that are only – I shouldn't just say younger because the, it, 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 it's not really an, an age thing. But um, the runaway popularity of hazy, juicy New England style um, has put a lot of the West Coast on the back burner. Um, and obviously they're still being made and they're still popular. Um, but th- th- they've it's a tough sell for people who have come into beer through hazy IPA where bitterness is not – an attribute. Um, it, 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 do you see a path forward for brewers to get those drinkers to come and embrace bitterness in the way that I think you know a lot of us who came up you know, many years ago came yeah, to appreciate it? it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be um, the one word I would have to say is slowly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, we got time. I mean, yeah. I mean, but but slowly, I was also in. IBUs. So let's say we're getting, you know, we, we start flooding it with, you know, I think the hazy thing started around 20, the, the, the low twenties. You know, I was talking to a brewer the other day, I'm working on a brewery with um, over in Miami and he wants zero BUs in his hazy. And so it's, it's just dropping and dropping. And, <laughs> and so it's, it's just kind of like an evolution I mean, what goes up, must come down, must go up, you know, that sort of a thing. And I believe, you know, we'll, we'll drinkers will get bored of their one fashion and they'll move over to another tap and oh well that's interesting so you don't want to put an ipa on tap that's you know harshly bittered and um calculated at 95 or 100 you know right next to a seven bu hazy juicy that they're used to so when i mean slowly i mean is when they're you know people are putting their lineup brewers are putting their lineup on tap you know kind of recognize um do they want the drastic, massive changes between each beer? You know, maybe they do want to have something middle of the road IPA like that's a 50 BU, um, so that when they go off of their hazy and they go maybe to an, uh, a, a German Pilsner that's around that or an, an amber ale or you know steam beer or something, they can, you know, even even some of the lagers like the Schwartz beers or the Viennas, the Viennese in, in the 20s or mid 20s. Um, you know, would be a nice step up as far as bitterness goes to get them more used to kind of West Coast IPA bitterness level. Um, so when I say slowly, I mean time-wise, but also in level of BUs. I, I don't think we should be going right back to an extreme IBU craze again. I, I would like to not us, not see us do that again. <laughs> um, I want to dovetail into something else. I, so I was going through uh, – old emails in anticipation of this conversation with you. And I found a press release from October 12th, 2011, uh, when you were named the uh, brewing manager for CBA in for Craft Brew Alliance in Woodenville. 
And there's a whole quote here, uh, singing your praises, deservedly so. And uh, a quote ends with, um, we're excited to collaborate with her on creative new brews. She will be an integral part of our specialty beers in the pub and our cask condition beers. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, I, I'm looking back into the time machine of 2011 and being like, oh, wow, people were talking about cask beers then. Um, <laughs> what happened? You know, that was a decade ago. Um, nobody really talks about cask anymore. Um, is, is there hope for cask in America? Um, I I have not seen that hope yet. Um, right now, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sad to say. And, I mean, um, that's a line that we would never see in a press release in 2021. Yeah, we wouldn't. And I, I think what happened, unfortunately, <laughs> I, it, I did a lot of cask beers when I was at um, Squatters, and um, I've been, uh, of course, I've been in Scotland and drinking um, quite a bit of cask beers over there. And, yeah. Um, I think what happened is uh, the craft beer craft breweries and you. Know, we kind of uh, got really busy. And so when brewers are really busy and maybe um, funds aren't so great and the brewers doing, wearing so many hats and then the owner comes down to the brewery and says, Hey, I want a cast condition program. You know, and this is back in the early two thousands, you know, that guy's got a handle. I want that cool handle on my bar. It's going to look great. The brewers sitting there going, I don't have any time at all yet to age these beers past, you know, 14 days. And now I've got to figure out how to put this cast program together. And I've got to, you know, and, and cast take, cast you know making true cast condition beer takes a little takes knowledge it takes um some foresight um, it takes you know more cleaning protocol and especially the line cleaning protocol especially at at a proper cask temperature and so i think what happened is a lot of cask beers went out there very uh, poorly managed as you probably assumed i was going to say and so um if 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 cask is going to hold on or if cask is going to come back let's say um it would have to be better managed for it to actually have a presence and stay this time um, and there would have to be someone that really believed in it and really, really loved cask beers to drive that and give the brewer, you know, the time to be able to run a good cask program. Well, here's hoping on that. That's front. here. Let's, we can only hope. Yes. Uh, so the 2021 Brewers Association uh, Board of Directors term uh, was just announced a couple weeks ago, and you are on the pub board. Um, pub breweries. Um, this has been a really tough year for restaurants, for pubs, for, um, you know, breweries that rely on people coming in and sitting down and drinking beer and having a meal and, uh, everything in between from, from where you see things right now. Um, how are we going to remember 2020 and what's the path forward look like? Um, it's interesting. I was on a um, a call this morning with the technical committee, which is um, one of the committees at the Brewers Association. And um, Jason per- Perkins from Allagash mentioned um, how, you know, you know, there's a lot of, of course, there was a lot of hardship that came along with COVID and in, in especially in the brewing industry um, and also, you know, in, in many different industries and in families and healthcare and all of that. But um, one thing he said was, you know, I have learned so much, you know, um, from having to pull back and not being in retail and having to learn about cans and, and, and increasing can production and getting the, you know, direct to consumer shipping and that, you know, I've learned so much. And I'm, I, I don't think I'm, we're ever going to go back to exactly where we were, but almost to a better place where, um, 
you know, I mean, we focus so much on um, right now. We're focusing so much on draft line maintenance and quality there at the tap. But I think to try to summarize um, the positive thing is mm-hmm. that you know we had to be incredibly creative, very very fast to think on our feet to survive um, as as brewers and as an industry, um, especially small brewers did to be able to you know. You know, keep their business loans going and keep their tanks full and get the beer to a customer. And thank, thank goodness most states reacted very well and helping us do that with different shifting laws that they put into play so we could get our beers to consumers. And I think what's going to happen is we'll slowly go back to where we're able to socialize again and into and, and go into pubs and we'll just have a more open mind. We'll just have a more open mind to um, obviously – draft line maintenance, but also all the opportunity that's out there in the, um, uh, to the, the, the direct to consumer market and getting beers in people's hands and people that don't want to leave their homes and how to ship beers and, and, and all the other opportunities that we might not have, you know, paid any attention to because we were, you know, kind of over the bar retail pub brewers in, in that respect, you know, and I'm speaking from a pub brewer aspect, yeah. you know, and, um, you know, the, the, the success of being able to create your pub and really make your entire business plan work out of just selling beer across the bar. Um, and now there's all, we, we had to, we had to not do that. So how else can we make money? So I think what's going to happen is we'll just become, you know, more successful, hopefully pub brewers um, by doing creating, you know, having more opportunities off-site and also nurturing the ones that are on-site. I, I am, it's been a, a while since I've been in a bar and, and, and been in a brewery uh, with any regularity. And I'm, I'm missing, as a drinker, I'm missing that personal connection, like the chance oh, to yeah. sort of go in and, you know, sit at a bar and, you know, even just have a quiet moment of like taking in my surroundings or, you know, drinking the beer, beer, beer where it's made. As we think about direct to consumer though, and we think about how the nature of the pub is probably going to change, you know, just because of, of, of the last year that we've been through. Um, how do how do breweries still make that personal connection though, when people are still remote I, that's a really good question. I mean, how many how many consumers want to pop up their laptop and you know watch you know a brewer's kind of tutorial on the beer or whatnot? I mean, one of the most the things that I loved the most was giving tours and then going out to the table and then and and, and people just they ate it up at squatters. They just loved it, you know. And you go and you take them through your tasting and you tell stories. Um, so how do you create that experience at home is a fabulous thing to think about because the um one of the number actually i will go ahead and say on record that the number one thing that grows the craft brewing market um is education to the customer okay and to the uh, to, to the consumer and the the higher the, the more education they have about beer and understanding about beer the the more apt they are to spend seven dollars on a pint Okay, and because the more comfortable they are to spend it, and um, no one, you know, no one wants to buy something for seven dollars and not enjoy it or turn it in or something like that. And I also think the fundamental principle of the craft brewing industry is the proper education of to the consumer um, of the diversity of of craft beers out there in the market. So how do we get that education and that also experience, like you said? To the person that doesn't want to maybe leave the house. Well, I don't think we can come to their house with masks on. You know, I don't think that's going to happen. But I mean, it's going to have to be maybe with 
probably something that ships with the beer, you know, which explains the, you know, explains the um, history of the beer or the inspiration of the beer, pictures of the brewers, you know, so something they can hold in their hands, touch, you know, and read about while they're enjoying the beer if they if they're interested in it. Yeah. Um, maybe a link, a scan where they can scan it. They can scan the beer and it pops up on their computer and it does. It gives a short video and it and it tries to give that social experience, you know, in a non-social way. I and, and that for lack of better words, I personally also, John, really do miss going to the pub. Really yeah. miss that actual social experience. I don't I don't think it's um replaceable. Um, but I do think there are some things that you can do with the consumer that doesn't want to go or the customer that doesn't want to go out of the door with um information that you provide with the shipment. Also um, you know, barcodes and, you know, your website and interactive, you know, information that they can engage in if they choose to. Huh? Yeah. I, I, you just can't replace it. I mean, I just, you know, you're social or you're not. Yeah. <laughs> it, just, it, 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 yeah. I, I just, I, I, I'm really curious to see how things progress over yeah, and the course how that of the next year. The, um, and also how it affects sales of, of certain types of beers. Yeah, because I think the craft beer industry was, you know, it's large. Like I said in the beginning of the conversation, um, it 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 its rise uh, when I started was about two percent of the market, yeah, and up to about twelve percent. And the rise of that ten percent gain is, you know, toted as really being education about all the beauty and diversity that all beer can be. It's not just American premium lager. And, and because of these pubs and that server is a direct link to that education, that information, that experience. I mean, you can package it a bunch of different ways, but ultimately it it touches on what you said. It's the experience. And that experience is brought to you, not by the brewmaster, but by the server, by the, the, you know, by the bartender um, right there at the pub. When you go and interact with that beer, and their stories and the ones that they've been educated. And I was, I had a huge education um, uh, uh, push and program at Squatters. And I would give, I was known for giving the tours and, and really training my servers to be my voice at the table and to be passionate. And I would try, you know, you can, you know, you can hire for skill. Um, and, and I always would, I would hire for passion and train for skill in the brewery. And I think that's a really, you know, I also would do that, you know, in the front of the house if I had anything to say about it, because, you know, you can't really train passion. And yeah. it's that passion, that energy, the stories, the history, the fun, the experiences, why they did something new. And that really connects people to the craft beer world. And so if learning how to get that experience at home without the frontline server and bartender is really, you know, the answer is always in the question. That's the question that we have to really kind of roll in our heads to keep, to keep um, craft numbers up in a, in a direct to consumer world. Wow. Yeah. It's uh, it, and it seems <laughs> when I first called you before we started recording, uh, you had, the, you, you were so upbeat and you were, you know, like I'm doing pretty good. And uh, I, I remarked that, you know, it, it's, I, I heard that now twice today, and I think that there is um, a, a, a shift that people have mm-hmm. mentally. Uh, a year in is more people are getting two shots in the arm, and, and, and there's hope on the horizon, at least it's spring here on the East Coast. So um, you know, we're, we're starting to feel a little bit warmer, and it, there, there's prospect of, 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 of nicer days to come. Um, 
but in that in that pub setting it's been so grim for 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 the last year and in you know in, in the hospitality industry it's been so grim for the last year that i hope uh, uh people can dig down deep and find some of that that happiness and find some of that passion again Oh, I, I think they will. I really do. Um, I believe people are starving for it, um, but they want to, of course, they don't want to lose it again. So I think people are very, being very cautious, you know, um, and slowly getting back. But ultimately, we are social creatures, I believe. And um, I do think we will be back at the pub, you know, I won't say rubbing elbows, but definitely standing closer to each other and perhaps, you know, you know, having, you know, fun discord and fun arguments about beer again. <laughs> well, I'm going to uh, say that I hope we can do another one of these uh, conversations in person uh, very yeah. soon uh, because I just I thoroughly enjoy talking with you because I, I'm, I'm always learning a lot. And um, thanks for thanks for taking the time. I, I, I really appreciate yeah. it today. Absolutely. And thanks for calling. I mean, you know, calling a brewer that is not allowed to go to beer festivals and, you know, talking about beer. Call me anytime, John. <laughs> And I'll remind folks that the Tally Cat Sunflower IPA is a limited edition from Firestone Walker and Jennifer Tally, and it's available in, I guess, California right now and yes. some other places. Maybe it's, Is it going out in that uh, very expensive Matt Brindelson box? Oh, gosh. I, I do not know. I know that the information is on Firestone Walker's website. Okay. So I would drive people there and sure. they can, um, and I do know it's throughout California and, uh, and where fire and, and all their pubs. So um, I would just um, go onto their website and uh, it'll lead you right to it. Go embrace the bitterness. Perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. Jennifer's working as a brewery consultant these days, so get in touch with her if you want a real pro helping your brewery out. I can promise you that she'll be back on this show soon, and stay tuned for more information on that upcoming collaboration she mentioned. Who do you want to hear behind the mic on this show? Tell me through the email. It's johnhall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at beeredge.com, or you can join the conversation on Twitter at john underscore hall. And be sure to check out BeerEdge.com for articles, to subscribe to the newsletter, and to get episodes of the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. We're also on social media at The Beer Edge. And we've expanded our This Week in Roush Beer offerings. Not only do we have the Facebook group, but now Instagram and Twitter have joined the fold, and you can get Roushy with us at TW Roush Beer. And if you're interested in advertising on this show or Andy's show, we have surprisingly affordable rates, and we'd love to tell you more. You can reach out to Liz Melby. She's on email at liz at beeredge.com. And speaking of advertising, we're grateful for this episode's sponsor, Bolide Communications. Do you have the right messages in place to make sure your brewery stands out in a crowded field? Are you executing with trusted partners who know the beer industry? Are you receiving the right counsel? Bolide Communications is a creative and strategic marketing consultancy with decades of experience working with some of the biggest names in beer and consumer products. Bolide Communications offers a wide range of marketing services to satisfied customers, including positioning, sales collateral and POS, branding, website design, public relations, and social media. Talk with Bolide Communications today on how they can get your brewery and beer to stand out to audiences that matter. You can visit them online at bolidecommunications.com or call them at 973-975-3037. You already make great beer. Let Bolide Communications help with the rest. And that's it for this week. You know the deal. Mitch Weber, he does the music. 
Jeff Quinn designed the logo, and remember to defend Pilsner. I'm John Hall. New episodes of this show release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm back again to drink beer and to think beer.